0: In an age of uncertainty, how should people of faith and those who lead educational institutions and congregations respond? What is possible in this moment that was not possible 18 months ago? Will things ever settle into a new normal or should we just prepare for a new abnormal? Today, I talked with Reverend Dr. L. Gregory Jones about these and other questions. An accomplished scholar, writer, fundraiser, and preacher, Jones knows the ecclesial ecology that surrounds a life of faith from the inside out. He's been navigating the shifting landscape for more than three decades, and he is a trusted guide to many. While no one needs a reminder of the many challenges of the last year, we could all use a shot of hope. Today's conversation, which moves from his early experiences to the way of life that prepare the next generation of leaders for the future church offers new imagination, but above all else, hope. I'm Dustin Bennick and I hope you'll join me for this conversation with Greg Jones.
1: Welcome to the John Wesley Fellows Podcast the show where John Wesley Fellows have the opportunity to sit down with experts in a variety of fields to talk about issues and topics that are top of mind in today's community. The centerpiece of a foundation for theological education, the Wesley Fellowship Program helps identify, train, and support scholars who are trained in the classical Wesleyan tradition and are committed to traditional innovation. For more information, visit aftesite.org.
0: Well, Greg, welcome to this conversation. Uh, I have been looking forward to this time together for some time. uh, And I also want to say a welcome to our listeners who've been following this podcast and the many fascinating conversations we're having uh, over the course of these times together. So welcome, Greg. It's great to have you. Great. Glad to be here. Thanks. Fantastic. Uh, Well, Greg, I am mindful that you are somebody who likely needs no introduction to many of our listeners. Uh, But nonetheless, I'll just provide a brief intro uh, in in case folks are listening in and they want to know a little bit more about you and your professional background. Uh, So I have the pleasure to uh, speak with Dr. L. Gregory Jones today, who is the newly appointed president at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee and accomplished scholar, writer, fundraiser, and preacher. Dr. Jones has authored or edited 19 books and more than 200 articles or essays. Uh, he recently released Navigating the Future, Tradition Innovation for Wilder Seas, uh, which he co-authored with Andy Hoag and also authored Christian Social Innovation. Dr. Jones previously served as the Dean at Duke Divinity School Duke University's chief international strategist to advance and coordinate the university's global engagement, and the provost at Baylor University. An ordained elder, Greg Jones regularly serves alongside his wife, Reverend Susan Pendleton Jones. Greg, once again, welcome. Thrilled to have you. Thanks. Great to be here. Uh, And and for our listeners, I am uh, Dustin Binnick. I'm a visiting assistant professor at practical theology at Baylor's Truett Theological Seminary and also a Louisville Institute postdoctoral fellow. Uh, so, so our conversation today, uh, I've, I've titled Leadership as a Way of Life, a conversation about education, formation, leadership, in times of crisis. Uh, so there's a whole host of topics we could consider, Greg, but I want to start by hearing a little bit more about you. Uh, you've spent your entire life around higher education and theological education. Uh, so what were some of the formative early experiences that inspired you to devote your life to serving educational institutions?
2: Hmm. Well, thanks. Uh, My father was an educator uh, Mm. and so that was probably part of it for me that I've been around education all my life. Um, But when I first uh, was in divinity school and then uh, did doctoral study, uh, it was around the time that Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue uh, Mm. was published and I was really struck, uh, Stanley Hauerwas King to Duke at the same time, um, and I was struck by the importance of character and Uh, the importance of formation uh, of character and in virtue and was struck by McIntyre's opening uh, vignette of chaos, which at the time didn't seem, it it seemed a little alarmist uh, in a world that seemed pretty stable. It now seems quite prescient, but uh, that was really formative. And I began to ask questions about um, how do we cultivate wise people and form them well? And uh, around that time, my father had also died not quite unexpectedly mm-hmm. while serving wow. as Dean of Duke Divinity School. And mm-hmm. he was somebody I admired greatly. And so one of the questions I had was, how do we create more people like my father uh, wow. who were wise in their judgment and very gifted leaders and people of faith? And so that's what animated my, uh, my doctoral dissertation and then kept drawing me into thinking about how do we create people who are capable of of wisdom, practical wisdom, especially.
0: Mm, Fascinating. So I'm I'm just, it's striking how the the intellectual, institutional, and and personal dimensions are interwoven here. For for many who have gone through a similar journey, I'm mindful that it takes time to unwind those interconnected threads. At what point in your career did you begin to see some of these connections that were forming very early on for you and your work?
2: Well, it's a, it's a great question, and actually, you know, in some ways, a pivotal moment came when uh, a, uh, a guy came to see me who had uh, read some of my uh, work on forgiveness, especially embodying forgiveness, and then he'd known that I'd become a dean and that I started writing about innovation and leadership and things like that, and uh, he came to see me, and he said, can I ask you a question? And he said, uh, he said you, you've done all these things. Is there anything that ties them together? And I thought, oh, I think he's asking me if I'm just ADD and just get interested in something new every year or two. Right. So I actually sat down and tried to just reflect on what are the threads that had woven together. You know, why did I go into administrative leadership? Um, How did that relate to my identity as a pastor? How did that relate to the things, the topics I'd written about? And I began to realize that there really is a coherent thread. Um, And that's that's continued uh, once I I narrated that to myself. I said it's the, uh, I I wrote a uh, a kind of memoir for myself that no one else has gotten to read. And I I haven't shared with really anybody, but it was really just a way of trying to make sense of my own vocation, all the threads that tied it together. And I think it really comes down to a sense that um, what new life in Christ entails and that it's both somewhat discontinuous, but also continuous. And so right. uh, going back to all the work of Forrest Bushnell and Aristotle's ethics and others on uh, what formation in a way of life looks like. And so uh, the leadership roles I've taken have really been out of recognizing that institutions are crucial for the formation of character and that we've been taking too many of them for granted.
0: Wow. Wow. Wow, that's fascinating. I mean, Greg, you've you've just set the table for us in such a fascinating way, and I want to I want to chase uh, several of those threads throughout our conversation. Uh, but before we we get there, I want to pause a little bit more on this topic of of higher education. You know, because it's kind of the setting, the environment in which so much of this institutional reflection takes place. Yeah. Uh, can you tell me more about throughout your career what has changed about higher education mm-hmm. and what stayed the same?
2: Oh, it's a great question. I uh, i mean, in one sense, everything and nothing. Um, right. So <laughs> the, uh, you know, the paradox is that um, the doomsayers have been predicting the demise or the transformation or all sorts of things about higher education for uh, a very long, really, centuries. And yet higher education is more persistent and uh, perseverant. than than almost anything else. If you think about the institutions that have existed for more than 50 years, they're almost all educational institutions or churches. Mm -hmm. And so I'm I'm pretty skeptical of people who think that everything's going to implode tomorrow and all those sorts of things. And yet, uh, when I reflect on, uh, I mentioned earlier, McIntyre's opening uh, uh, page or two, um, and it at the time, it just seemed alarmist because everything seemed stable in higher education.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, and now, yeah, I, I said it looks prescient because I think now it feels like everything's up for grabs. That's been intensified by COVID, um, but it certainly, all COVID has done is intensified trends that were already there. Um, whether you think about the financial sustainability of higher education and the business models that undergird it, whether you think about the demographics of faculty and staff and students, you think about the role technology plays, um, all of those dimensions are just way more important now than they seemed 40 years ago, and yet, uh, the, and and broader cultural dynamics. You know, the lack of trust in higher education is is much more intense now than it was 40 years ago, um, and so I think a lot of things. There's a sense of um, great uncertainty or um, maybe even a, a sense of turmoil in higher education that right. felt much more stable 40 years ago. So that's what I mean by everything has changed and yet nothing has changed. And in the wake of the last year and what I call multiple pandemics, COVID, racial injustice, um, economic disruptions, mental health challenges, all of those things, I um, it seems to me that it's very hard to anticipate what the next five years is going to look like uh, much less 10 or 15 years.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. I think that that's fair. And, and for, for our listeners, you know, I'll, I'll just note, as we were, we were talking, I pulled the uh, McIntyre's after virtue off my bookshelf and, and checked the publication date. And um, the, it was first published in 1981. Right. And so we're marking 40 years Yep. Um, Which which coincides with so many interesting historical cultural transitions. Yeah. Uh, so I'll just note, note that for our listeners.
2: Um, and by the I, way, that's how long the Israelites were in the wilderness. So there's some <laughs> interesting analogs there as well.
0: <laughs> that's striking. That is striking. So we talked about higher education. I'm also mindful that that theological education isn't identical to higher education, even though yeah. they're interrelated in many ways. Uh, what changes are unique to theological education, Greg?
2: Well, there are some things that people assume is, are, are unique that I don't think are. Mm-hmm. So one of the advantages of being in a university setting is I spend a lot of time with the dean of the business school and the law school, the medical school, uh, other professional schools. And one of the things you learn in that process is how many of the struggles you're dealing with are similar to theirs. So if you think about the, the challenges or the tensions between the seminary and the church, um, they're analogous concerns between uh, law schools and law firms, or business schools and fir- business firms. And so I'm not sure those are the unique challenges. I think the unique challenges um, have to do with the decline of denominations and the ways in which theological education for so many years in the United States was very denominationally focused. Um, the challenges that the decline of those denominations has also provided for the funding models, uh, and the growing polarization in the churches, uh, the fracturing of denominations, uh, and, and the kind of growing polarization—it's just much more difficult to know. Uh, even if you, even if you're a school that cares a lot about the church, what the term "church" means is right. far more up for grabs than it was 40 years ago. Uh, and that's, that's changed where you think about where students are coming from, who your partners are, where your students are going to go to, um, how you resource all of those dynamics. You know, uh, 40 years ago when I started seminary, uh, there wasn't really much around mega churches. The, you know, large churches were more likely to be county seat town kind of churches. Now they're a phenomenon unto themselves with their own strengths and fragilities. But that was a that was a largely new phenomenon. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one way you might characterize those those forty years of theological education is: uh, forty years ago, almost everybody was a den- was in a denomination, mm-hmm. and uh, now you could say we're all congregationalists, right. even those who are parts of denominations.
0: Right, right, right. That's fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. And 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 you know the cascading crises and cascading challenges continue to unfold. I think yeah. you've nicely, nicely named the ways that they're inseparable and also evolving in um, unforeseen and maybe even unprecedented ways. Uh, yeah, the it, other it, thing it,
2: I'd it, say that's characteristic about the church, the change in the church and theological education is a, uh, a change in the role of the Master of Divinity degree. Mm-hmm. When I went to seminary, I think most people thought of the Master of Divinity degree on analogy to the to uh, the MD or the JD, that it was a necessary degree to practice the craft. Right. And now an MDiv is far more like an MBA. It's nice to have, but a lot of your most effective leaders don't actually have it or don't care about it. And so mm-hmm. it, it took me, it was probably sometime during my first stint as dean when I realized that my mental image needed to shift that there were lots of practicing pastors who didn't have a master of divinity degree and didn't care about that, that I began to realize the analogy really wasn't to a license like an MD who can't practice uh, as it was more like the MBA.
0: That's nice. That's really helpful.
2: Greg, as, as you talk, uh, it strikes me that
0: so much of this last year and so much of what you've described about your journey is a, is a form of learning. And I'm, I'm mindful that uh, some of the greatest developments in learning oftentimes come as a surprise. Uh, and yeah. I'm thinking about how the Christian story uh, comes as a surprise, uh, the surprise of a baby born in a manger, the surprise of the resurrection, the surprise of God extending good news to the Gentiles. Um, and even even over the last year, this, this horrific surprise of the multiple crises uh, and multiple pandemics that we've been facing. Uh, so, so with this experience and with this scriptural imagination in mind is there anything about your work and service over the last forty years that's come as a particular surprise
2: uh, well I love the image of surprise and my friend and colleague Kevin Rowe recently published a little book called Christianity surprise right that really focuses on um, the significance of the resurrection uh, and how that spurred the early Christian movement is presenting questions how did Christianity go from 5,000 followers of Jesus in the year 50 to 5 million two centuries later. Um, and it's really around the power of the resurrection and what that did with a new vision of the, what it means to be human, creation of institutions, um, all those sorts of dimensions. I think what I'd say is, um, and and especially in the last year, what I would say what's been most surprising to me is... Um, to take a title from a book, a really good book by Herbert McCabe, God matters um, that I think I've now realized that um, that at the heart of theological education and the heart of my own vocation is a sense of what I call Easter hope and Pentecostal power,
0: right?
2: Uh, If God raised Jesus from the dead and if God poured out the spirit at Pentecost and God's continually active in the world, then there's a lot for us to do. And if not, we probably ought to just shut the doors. Um, And so that sense of the centrality. And, you know, even in the last uh, year, in the midst of all the pandemics, I was talking to a friend and I said, you know, um, I've run out of adjectives. I've been saying these are turbulent times. These are Mm -hmm. tumultuous times, chaotic times. I got to surreal times. I said, you got any new adjectives for me? And he said, yeah, for Christians, it's our time. Wow. And that image just made me realize that I needed to be much more focused on that and on the future. You know, when, when, Israel, when Jerusalem is under siege uh, and the Israelites are about to flee, Jeremiah hears a word from the Lord. And what is it? Go buy a plot of land. Say what? You know, that's counterintuitive. In the Antonine plagues in the second century, as all the Romans were fleeing, It was Christians who were heading into the city to care for the suffering and the sick and the dying. That's been characteristic of people of faith all along, and especially in these tumultuous, difficult times of the last year. And so what I've really realized is that Christianity's surprise, to take your metaphor in the title of Kevin's book, ought to be what we we rediscover. And as Methodists, I've even noted that, uh, you know, the heart of Methodism in the 18th century was the rediscovery of Christianity's surprise. That's good. Uh, the power of Christ, the power of the Spirit, um, that vision of what it means to be human, a kind of impulse to create and renew institutions. Um, that was all characteristic of the heart of Methodism as an expression of Christianity's surprise. And so that has become both surprising and renewing for me and my own imagination.
0: And, and I'm, I'm just struck by this language, how it's, how it's our time. Uh, mm. it, it strikes me that that's language that both acknowledges the gravity of this moment, but also bends imagination towards hopeful possibility Uh, because the collective, the hour is the space by which we might apprehend God's surprise. That's good.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, we're in a time when for too many people, the future doesn't seem very promising. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's a lot of despair and anxiety and loneliness and a reminder that this isn't a time where it's easy to be optimistic, because that depends on what we're doing. But it is a time where it's easy to be hopeful if we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and poured out the Spirit at Pentecost. So I, I hear in your um, reflections here uh, an invitation
0: to uh, to think and work and build in, in hopeful ways to serve our communities. Uh, I've I've heard and read where you've talked previously about this in terms of Christian social innovation, where we're holding the past and future together in creative tension. Uh, and, And this moment, this particular moment, when the interlocking crises and pandemics of our day have disrupted so much about where we work, worship, and study, what does innovation actually look like in practice?
2: Well, it looks like a whole bunch of different things, but what I would say in common is it looks like bearing witness to the Holy Spirit, who is making all things new by conforming us to Christ, the one in whom creation came to be. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't sound like very much concrete in practice, but I say that's what it holds together because um, the, the churches that are doing the most creative, innovative work are doing it in a way that's like a jazz combo where you can hear the resonances of the past and you get that scriptural imagination now in a new key. I like to teach using uh, John Coltrane's My Favorite Things that you can find on YouTube. And you, when you're listening to that, you'll hear the very familiar tune from The Sound of Music. And then he takes you on riffs and you go and say, what? Where are we? How, mm-hmm. where, what happened to those? And then he brings you back to that again. Yeah. And, you know, Jeremy Begbie has some wonderful work on the ways in which that's also a theme in Scripture that uh, we go on journeys where we're we're home and we see the familiar theme and then he takes us on a riff, God does. Uh, Sometimes Mm. it's a very long one, um, exile for 40 years and those sorts of things. Yet there's always a return to home. Right. And so what I think innovation looks like in practice is the familiar in a new key. And that's been with pastors doing really amazing things of transforming their worship, uh, or practicing their hospitality uh, in a new way um, that I've seen some churches do in some really creative ways to feed the people in their community. Um, it's, it's doing things that are familiar, but in a new key that stirs the imagination.
0: Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. And, and
2: just, you know, thinking with you for a moment, I love
0: the metaphor of innovation as, as good jazz music, uh, because it strikes me, uh, that, that good jazz music, even if one isn't musical, it kind of gets into your body where you start tapping your foot to maybe yeah. kind of moving your shoulder or bobbing your head. Where I think about my uh, my young daughter who will hear a song and just start twirling around in the room. It affects yeah. our bodies. Good music affects our bodies. And it strikes me that uh, the wisdom that you articulate affects our bodies and our imagination in ways that lead us out into the world.
2: Yep, agree. No, great, I agree.
0: So, I have no also,
2: musical ability, but great musical appreciation. I, I don't either. I mean,
0: sometimes I can't tell just, you know, tapping my foot or bobbling my head a little bit. Uh, so so it also strikes me that as you talk about imagination, so much of your work and what you're inviting people to in this moment uh, is an invitation to see the more, see what's already there in our communities and institutions. But in the face of so much uncertainty how do you see the more? How do you see the possibility that exists already in communities and institutions?
2: Well, a lot of that has to do with uh, learning to see as God sees. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what, you know, um, it's a kind of spiritual sight. I've always been struck since my first year in seminary with that pa- those passages in, in Mark's gospel where they're framed by, uh, the, the stories um, are framed by physically blind people who are spiritually able to see, and then the disciples who physically can see, but spiritually are blind. Mm -hmm. And I think that learning to see, you know, through the eyes of the risen Christ uh, leads you to what John's gospel would call a logic of life abundant um, and not a zero sum game, Mm -hmm. or you begin to see the way God sees as with a prism where Uh, light becomes refracted in beautiful colors. And all of a sudden, you're kind of thinking, how'd that come from? You know, my father used to use the image of seeing like the crazy house at the carnival. The church should be like the crazy house at the carnival. When you walk in, the floors move, the the mirrors look funny. Uh, You're not quite sure where you're going to step next, but isn't that why you bought the ticket in the first
0: place? Good,
2: good. (laughs) So I think it's that sense of, or, you know, Annie Dillard talking about needing to wear a crash helmet to church. You know, mm-hmm. too often I need to wear a neck brace to avoid my head nodding off uh, in uh, in too many churches. But the, the the sense of expectation, if you can see as God sees, you'll always see the more. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I like to quote regularly the, the close of the prayer in Ephesians 3, you know, after we've been asked to comprehend with all the saints what is the height, the depth, the length, the breadth of uh, Christ, then the last two verses are now to the one who, by the power at work within us, is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we could ask or imagine. Mm. It's it's actually believing that there is abundantly far more than all we could ask or imagine. And so being willing to have our mind blown. And a big part of that is storytelling. Okay. Uh, you know, it's, it's like uh, reading about Richard Allen in the late 1700s uh, during the... Uh, the yellow fever pandemic, uh, engaging in heroic action. And then I realized, well, maybe if I'm not doing that in this pandemic, that's more a sign of my lack of faith mm, than anything wow. else. And so all of a sudden your imagination gets stirred and it becomes a challenge to say, oh, if I don't want to live this way, it's not because it's not possible. Mm. It's because I'm content with the old wineskins. Right. You know, as, as we're
0: talking about about seeing the more, Greg, uh, I, I'm also reminded that there's so much that can cloud our vision um, in very specific material ways. So as I think about um, this moment, I'm mindful uh, how anxiety within organizations can actually prevent individuals from seeing the more. Or I'm also mindful of um, systematic uh, structures of, of injustice and inequality, how that can prevent people from seeing the more. Or I'm also mindful how complexities of mental health can't prevent people from seeing the more. Um, so, and so much of this is unseen. Uh, we don't see these barriers. We don't see these obstacles. Uh, so in light of them, how do you actually organize the structure of the communities you serve in ways that invite people to see the more, but also acknowledge the meaningful barriers to the imagination we hope our communities will have?
2: Yeah. Well, I think it's the difference between hope and optimism. Yeah, uh, that optimism just kind of says the world's all happy and sweet and light, and so tries to inspire in those ways. Um, Martin Seligman has a line, you know, he's got a book called Learned Optimism, and it's uh, it's all about how if you're optimistic, you'll be more successful in work and business and politics and all sorts, sales, all sorts of things. Then he has a paragraph out a third of the way through the book where he says pessimists do have one advantage over optimists a more accurate understanding of reality Mm. oh well there's that so you can either be successful or have an accurate understanding of reality well you know when you think about what you were describing of you know whether it's mental health issues uh or or personal sin or systemic injustice and systemic sin all those things shrink our imagination Mm. and uh they're real. And so you can become a pessimist uh, because of an accurate understanding of just how broken and intractable so many realities are. And yet, the Christian virtue of hope is not optimism. It's actually being able to hold together that accurate understanding of reality with a trust and a confidence in who God is. That it's really crucial. This is why Easter is so pivotal, because Easter isn't about Christ uncrucified about Christ crucified and risen. And so mm. I often think about, you know, Holy Saturday as a really pivotal moment or the Easter vigil as a way that holds together the, the stark awareness of injustice and suffering and death. We tried to push Jesus out of the world yes, uh, through the cross. Mm. And yet God doesn't say, okay, you, you finally did it. You wore out my patience. You know, 2 Corinthians 1 says, Uh, that Jesus is God's definitive yes, even in the wake of our no. And so it's that sense of hopefulness. And I believe that 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 impels leaders to always be people who convey hope and who who articulate that vibe. You know, you may not be able to change people's minds, but you do have a lot to do with how you uh, articulate and frame things. And I've been really influenced by a book called A Beautiful Constraint and A Distinction, but they say between we can't because and we can if. We can if isn't just saying like Thomas the Tank Engine, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, which can Mm -hmm. lead people to just go, there he goes again. We can if acknowledges there are real constraints, there are real barriers, there are real issues that have to be dealt with. We can if, and sometimes that we can if may involve praying for a miracle. Right. And yet that we can if keeps you focused on God's future. Right, right.
0: Yeah, I like this language of of and yet, because it seems like so much of the Christian story and the imagination that sustains leadership for times of crisis is an and yet. Yeah. It's an and yet there's more to the story. And yet there's hope. And yet Jesus is raised from the dead yep yeah. uh, awesome. in, in the face of, of those various challenges, Greg, uh, I want to kind of pull on a thread I think you've, you've mentioned at several points, which is is where you turn um, in times of crisis or when you face a challenge that you're not sure how to resolve. Uh, you've mentioned stories, you've mentioned music, you've mentioned uh, a broader community. But can you put a finer point on that? Um, when you don't have a, you have a challenge that you're not sure how to resolve, where do you turn to for creativity and inspiration? And who do you call for input?
2: It's a great question, um, and I distinguish different kinds of challenges because sometimes okay. I'm my own worst enemy. And if I yes. get into a, if I get into what uh, my wife Susan sometimes calls a pity party, um, music will play a really significant role. And I there are some particular songs and hymns that I'll listen to because I okay. know they just they kind of re, they reset or reboot my emotions, and so that's an important. Dimension. Reading fiction on a regular basis is, is really important to keeping me imaginative. And so, you know, there are some personal roles that those kinds of things. More generally, the challenges that I face in leadership or knowing what to do, I would say, is um, that there are key conversation partners, uh, many of whom are actually outside of higher education or theological education, who um, help me frame questions. And they're really significant sources. That includes uh, books I read, magazines I subscribe to, things like Fast Company, uh, those sorts of things where you know they're not focused on higher education or Christians, either one, but they they help me frame things. And so I, I spend a fair bit of time talking to people, both uh, who are Christian and non-Christian entrepreneurs uh, and leaders of other sorts of organizations. One of the best conversations I had uh, about... Uh, distributed leadership was actually with the former U.S. Postmaster General,
0: wow.
2: uh, and talking about how you deal with uh, limited authority and widely dispersed communities. And I thought, oh, that's pretty interesting, you know. So, <laughs> and then drawing the relevant analogies. Um, I also like to read biographies because uh, they I, I, they shed a lot of light on things. Mm-hmm. I recently read a biography of Frederick Douglass. In one circumstance and a biography of James Baker. So two different centuries, two very different social circumstances, and I learned a ton from both of them. Wonderful.
0: Well, I hope our listeners will, will track those down and also continue to read uh, widely as well, because it strikes me that that's one of the things uh, you do and offer to us. Uh, I, I want to I pivot now and uh, borrow language and insight from one of these possible conversation partners. Uh, I'm mindful that in the early days of, of the 2020 pandemic, uh, Andy Crouch and uh, several of his colleagues penned an essay where they suggested that we were entering a little ice age. Um, and if I remember the date correctly, this was was March, maybe even early April, but it could have even been March. And, and they quoted Gideon Litchfield, who predicted, quote, we're not going back to normal. Um, and in March, it's almost it's almost laughable how prescient this was and what we thought we were going back to, how quickly. Uh, But we're 12 months in, more than 12 months later. uh, And as you think about where we sit today, do you anticipate a return to normal?
2: No. Mary Barra, the uh, CEO of General Motors, um, doesn't even refer to the way some people have called it a new normal. She said that all she'll talk about is a new abnormal. Mm. And uh, so I don't, uh, I mean, there will be some things that will look familiar again. Uh, You know, I went out to dinner last night at a restaurant for the first time in 14 months. Uh, And, you know, there were some things that felt alien, but it also was familiar. And, you know, I signed a check uh, at the end of the uh, meal. So there were familiar things. That's not to say everything's going to be unfamiliar or non-normal but um, you know, when, when Andy and his colleagues wrote about the Little Ice Age, I actually went and read a book about the Little Ice Age and what that looked like and the transformations that happened, because I was really struck by the metaphor. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you think about, uh, I mean, I've talked to people in healthcare who said telemedicine is now in 2021 where two years ago they thought it might be by 2035. Unbelievable. Uh, the grocery store industry talking about uh, remote grocery delivery, they think they're somewhere in the 2030s uh, already. And so, you know, I think that a lot of those changes are, are, are going to last. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we're doing this conversation via Zoom. Uh, right. You know, I, I realize that now where you are in the world is far less an obstacle to a class, a meeting, or just about anything else than it seemed even 15 months ago. Yeah, we had Skype, and I had used Zoom, but it still felt artificial. Now it feels just part of the fabric of life. And, uh, you know, like, if you say, could we have a phone call, people are like, why not Zoom? You know, right? Well, that's a big flip in, mm-hmm. in a year. And I think those sorts of changes are going to accelerate. I don't think we have any awareness. You know, if you think about 5 years ago people were predicting an inevitable focus on cities you know more than half the population around the world had gone to, to we're now living in cities as this was an irreversible trend well now in the wake of covid you're finding a lot of people moving into rural areas because they can work remotely exactly. uh, well so what does that mean for how we're going to want to gather or how we're going to where we're going to live or how mm-hmm. we're going to work i think all of those things are unpredictable. And I would just say the new abnormal will have some things that are familiar, not everything's going to change, but all of us will be a lot healthier uh, if we anticipate being surprised rather than returning to the familiar.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's good and helpful. And to chase, chase that language a little bit more in terms of the new abnormal, uh, I'm curious uh, what you envision for educational institutions and the broader ecclesial ecology. Uh, Greg, you nicely talked about uh, healthcare and grocery and related industries, uh, but what's the new abnormal that we're approaching for educational institutions and theological education?
2: A much more prominent role for technology, Mm -hmm. um, but not necessarily just in straight online. I think it'll be much more hybrid kinds of modes or high flex uh, kinds of modes. Um, I think we'll be we'll have to be way more intentional about what is formative uh, because we've gotten really lazy um, Mm. in higher education and in education more generally. And so uh, some trends that we're already developing around competency-based learning, those sorts of things, I suspect over the next 10 years, we'll see far more attention uh, similar to the early church and the kind of uh, mentoring uh, kinds of roles that are, that Origin and others would have had uh, to be far more influential, where you can get the information you need in a variety of ways and take exams in a competency-based uh, fashion, and that we'll see far more formational kinds of interactions that will be much more individualized and more more of an apprenticeship model.
0: So, to chase that a little bit bit further, um, I'd love to talk about. In this new abnormal, what's the what's the value? Approximate social connections. You know, I'm thinking about uh, some of McIntyre's work on um, uh, tradition, community, practice, and it seems like there's a certain proximate quality assumed in that. Um, and even as we talk about the changes that are induced with technology, is there still a value for proximate social connections? And if so, what is the value for formation?
2: Yeah. Well, I think I'm, I. I... Anybody who believes in, in an incarnation of God ought to continue to believe that embodied interactions will matter. Right. Uh, you know, if you, if you think that we're going to go completely disembodied online, um, then I think you're a Gnostic and not a Christian. Um, so I think there's something fundamental there. And I do think those proximate interactions, I actually think hybrid will be far more the norm than pure online some things if it's just mastering material can be done online there are there are three main areas i think about that i don't think do well uh with technology Uh, one of them is meeting people for the first time Uh, the second is resolving conflict and the third is achieving creative breakthroughs you can do lots of other things I probably would add in light of your question, a fourth, and that is forming people well across time. You can do a lot technologically, but there's something about, um, you know, I've, I've read the neuroscience that Zoom is twice as taxing because your mind is actually trying to figure out um, how to navigate social cues in a way that doesn't have all those interpersonal dimensions. So there's a reason why we're exhausted at the end of a day on Zoom, and I think that you know when with my granddaughter, it's not just what I say, Uh, it's whether I'm holding her, it's whether I'm kissing her, it's it's using all of the senses that begin to form her, and if you think about attachment theory uh, for young children. It's, it's a lot of things that can't be conveyed technologically. So I think those kinds of proximate social interactions are going to be really important. That's why I thought, talked about the apprenticeship model. Mm-hmm. You know, medical education, there's only so much you can learn uh, by way of information before, you know, they want you to, to apprentice. And, you know, when I had knee surgery in a teaching hospital, you know, the next day my attending physician, the surgeon, came in and started pressing on the incision. It hurt like the Dickens, but I knew he needed to test it. And then he turned to the woman behind him who was his chief resident. He said, here's where you press. And then I looked and it looked like there were about a hundred people behind her (laughs) who were all gonna do that. And I thought this this borders on, you know, torture, but but that's the way you learn. And I think that's the way you learn ministry. It's the way you learn any craft. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think those proximate social interactions will be powerful. I just think they're also going to be linked to high tech engagements as well.
0: Um, and it strikes me that that this description of ministry as a craft is is also another way to to talk about the importance of wisdom, uh, which you introduced at yeah, the absolutely. beginning of con- our conversation. Formation and wisdom uh, requires some proximity to it. You bet. You bet. Um, I, I want, with that in mind, I want to. want to circle back to um, some of the beginning of our conversation where I noted for our listeners uh, that you are the newly appointed president at Belmont University. um, And I'm mindful that that marks a significant period of personal and professional transition for you. Uh, What about Belmont attracted you in this particular moment, Greg?
2: Well, I wasn't looking to leave Duke and I wasn't looking for anything new. Um, I kind of assumed that this was my Uh, last time of institutional leadership, and uh,
0: Mm.
2: so I I was surprised by my interest when I got a call asking me if I'd consider it. Um, I love Belmont because it's a Christ-centered university. It's got uh, now, with the launch of a new college of medicine that they announced uh, during the time I was in conversations with them, uh, it'll be 13 uh, colleges across the, the university, Wow. I've always loved interdisciplinary uh, opportunities. Mm-hmm. Nashville is a, is a really healthy, growing city. And I love the diversity of the colleges that range from, you know, medicine and health sciences and nursing to architecture and art and arts and mm-hmm. sciences and business and education. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a music entertainment business as well as a college of music. Uh, so there's, there's a wonderful diversity. And it's a really healthy university that, uh, that is intentionally Christian and intentionally ecumenical. Mm. And when I asked the, the chair of the board, when he contacted me, uh, I asked what they were looking for. And they said, a, a Christ-centered, forward-looking innovator who has experience in education. And I thought, well, I can check all those boxes. And uh, it seems like a great opportunity.
0: Yeah, it, it certainly does. And I'm sure you'll be a gift a gift to the community.
2: Thanks.
0: Uh, I'd love to, to think with you for a moment about um, a place like Belmont uh, to consider the role of institutions in times of crisis. Yeah. Uh, and and to, to introduce this, I want to read um, a brief uh, two paragraphs from your work with, with Dr. Andy Hogue, Navigating the Future Tradition Innovation for Wilder Seas. Uh, and this is at the beginning where you talk about how uh, you say, we love to hate the institutions we need. In the midst of modernity's ruins, we are aware uh, that we do not have the social sh- infrastructure that we need to flourish, we look for quick fixes. We want networks instead of institutions. We want to be spiritual without being religious. We want a future that has no connection to the past. We want policies that will achieve justice and eliminate suffering. Yet we are also at least dimly aware that the quick fixes aren't working and likely won't work. We sense that we need a broader vision of the future and of the past that enlivens the present and points to transcendence and the purpose for the future. We need an understanding of what it means to flourish that can help us overcome our despair and discover life that is real life. We need to be able to cultivate institutions that encourage networks of relationships to serve thriving communities. Uh, So so Greg, with those words in mind, um, what does it look like for an institution like Belmont to serve students, faculty and broader community in the wake of crisis?
2: Thanks for reading that. It uh, it sounds vaguely familiar, and I liked it. Uh, but uh, it's nice to be reminded sometimes of things you wrote a year ago. Uh, I understand the feeling. The uh, I, I would say that uh, Yuval Levine wrote a really interesting book about a year ago called A Time to Build. Mm-hmm. And in it, he distinguishes healthy institutions as molds of character from what he talks about our contemporary fascination with institutions only as platforms for celebrity. Mm-hmm. And that image has really resonated with me that part of what we're seeing across our culture, across the world, is the, the dysfunction of institutions. And that's in education, politics, business, uh, the environment. You know, Just name the, the, the sector, and we don't have the institutions we need. And we're yes. not forming the kind of leaders, uh, the kind of people of character. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a guy I know says, uh, "quote likes to quote Teddy Roosevelt, that uh, a leader without character is a, a menace to society. Wow. And, you know, we're seeing the ill effects of that on lots of different fronts. And mm. uh, so I think that, you know, the opportunity for me at Belmont is it's a healthy institution uh, that can, can be strengthened. Obviously, there's a lot of work to be done and yet they have the formation of character in their vision, mission, and value statements. And so it's a place where I think I can build because there's a coherent sense of the future. What we're looking at right now is a plight uh, where too often we hate the institutions we need, as, as you quoted me saying, and we've allowed them to degenerate into bureaucracies and bureaucracies become proceduralist without any clear sense of the end toward which they're moving. And, you know, that's where a Christian university like Belmont, I wouldn't trade its coherence for Harvard, Yale, or Duke, because it's very hard at those institutions to figure out what it is that holds them together as a coherent Mm. university. You know, I sometimes say that, you know, we have a master of health administration program in the medical school at Duke and then master of health administration program in the business school at Duke that compete for students. And the only thing that holds them together is a basketball team. Uh, yes. you know, but uh, I think we need much more coherence and a much greater sense of the telos or the end toward which we're mm. moving.
0: Yeah, that's good, that's good. And I like your description of, of what holds a university together. Uh, and it also reminds me of some of your reflections about what holds uh, your work and your career together uh, that you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation. And, and another way to think about that uh, is kind of as a way of life. It strikes me that your various forms of service, teaching, writing, reflect a particular way of life. How would you describe the way of life that unifies your work, Greg?
2: Uh It's a great question. I I think you've alluded to it. Maybe I've commented in some ways. It's a continuous journey of learning, Mm -hmm. serving and leading uh, focused on what are the conditions that enable people to flourish and communities to thrive. And that means taking seriously the brokenness that requires forgiveness, uh, the innovation that will make new life possible in a kind of ongoing immersion in what I call Easter hope and Pentecostal power. That if we really believe and expect God to show up, then we ought to be focused on the future in ways that are always drawing us deeply into the wisdom of the past and what you characterized early on as a scriptural imagination. I've been really influenced recently by Charles Taylor's secular age. Mm-hmm. Where he says at the beginning of modernity, hardly anybody was an atheist. If you thought did, if you didn't think God was active in the world, you were most likely a deist because even the atheists assumed there was a God. He says, at the end of modernity, we now live in a time where even the Christians live and act as if there's no God. Yes. So what I would say, I hope, characteristic of my way of life, is a mode of leadership that only makes sense uh, if God really is at work in the world. I fail in all sorts of ways on a regular basis with that, but it is seeking that ongoing learning and transformation that enables uh, me to bear witness to new life in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit.
0: Yeah, that's my hope as well. So, to follow up, Greg, um, if leadership, if education is bound up with forming leaders to serve the world, uh, what way of life can prepare the next generation of leaders to serve the church and the broader world?
2: Well, it's one that's that focuses much more on what people need to learn than what I know how to teach, that, mm. uh, that comes alongside and helps people form uh, their patterns of thinking, feeling, uh, perceiving, and living, um, that empowers and enables and is... Uh, Always in beta mode—that is always yes. learning, always experimenting, and seeing what the possibilities might be. And I think that's—I uh, think that's uh, learning as a way of life—is uh, way better than thinking that you're getting credentialed and then you're done with that.
0: That's good. That's good. I mean, I like this language of thinking about learning in the beta mode and about the the possibilities that are emerging. Uh, you mentioned earlier the, as we, we think about the future, specifically the future of the church, uh, as you think about the future and future of the church, Greg, and the next generation of leaders, what gives you hope?
2: I think probably that there's been a sufficient pruning, Mm. um, that the people who are going to go into ministry are going to do so for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. And, uh, if they really expect to be surprised, and expect to embody that Easter hope and that Pentecostal power that we'll see uh, new life really unleashed. And it will unlo- It will likely take forms that we have yet not imagined. And that's really exciting for me to think about.
0: Good, good. Yeah, as it is for me as well. Uh, well, Greg, this has been fascinating. Uh, is there anything else we need to know about you, your work or leadership in this particular moment?
2: I'd just say that uh, uh, let's lean into the hope and uh, and really focus on what God's up to and, and try to align ourselves to that. That I'm, uh, even as I'm now 60 years old, um, I'm really excited about the future, not because of who we are, but because of who God is.
0: Amen, amen. And may we figure out how to do it together.
2: Indeed. Amen.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Greg. It's been a pleasure to have you.
1: This concludes today's episode of the John Wesley Fellows Podcast. Today's episode was produced by Daniel Yike. Music by Ian Post. This podcast is a production of a Foundation for Theological Education and the Wesley Fellowship Program. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.